Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Hey, once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you. I find myself looking forward to our conversation more and more just because, uh, well, things get more and more interesting every single time we get together. So uh, I'm anxious to hear your take on some of the things happening. Uh, shall we start with the uh, the current ongoing presidential contest? Absolutely. And, you know, we talk about a living constitution, and that's a term that I don't agree with. The idea that our constitution changes and evolves with time. No, the Framers gave us a constitution for the ages, and it should be interpreted as the Framers intended it, unless we amend it, which we have occasionally, of course. But we can see the Constitution living today in the sense that it's currently relevant and that constitutional issues are being litigated all the time, and right now they're being fought out in the Supreme Court in a way that could possibly affect the future of this nation. And we at the Foundation have been taking a great interest in this, and several of us as individuals joined together as we called ourselves constitutional attorneys. Yesterday, we filed a amicus brief with the U.S. Supreme Court in support of one of the parties in this battle for the presidency. What had happened is that in Pennsylvania, a congressman, a newly elected congressman by the name of Kelly, had filed a lawsuit claiming that the Pennsylvania executive officials had changed election law in Pennsylvania contrary to what the legislature had provided and without authority from the legislature. A state judge ruled that he was correct. He ruled that what the officials in Pennsylvania had done was contrary to the laws passed by the legislature and contrary to the Pennsylvania Constitution. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court, in a divided opinion last week, reversed that. They didn't disagree with any of the reasoning of the trial judge, any of his reasoning by which he said that what Pennsylvania officials had done was illegal, but rather the Supreme Court majority invoked what we call the doctrine of latches. That is simply a term to mean that this should have been decided long ago and you waited way too long to bring your case. Well, I think it's very strange to use the doctrine of latches in a case like this. For one thing, latches never applies when we're dealing with an issue of constitutional rights. Secondly, the term latches has never been applied that I can see to a statute that was only about a year old and to executive actions that were less than a year old and to an election that happened only a few weeks ago. And in fact, I think you could make an argument that until the election, there was no actual harmful result from their actions, and therefore it wasn't ripe until then. Anyway, that was the decision of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Congressman Kelly filed this action with the U.S. Supreme Court to have the Pennsylvania Supreme Court reversed. The U.S. Supreme Court decided not to take that case. And many people saw that as a victory for the Pennsylvania officials and for the Biden forces. But what they didn't realize was that at the same time, the state of Texas 
which has a conservative state government and a conservative attorney general, filed a action in the U.S. Supreme Court suing the states of Pennsylvania and Georgia and Michigan and Wisconsin, claiming that Pennsylvania had, or rather that Texas had been really denied an effective voice in the election because Pennsylvania officials and Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin officials had, in effect, stolen it from them by their illegal actions. So this was filed just, a, well, just Tuesday, I believe it was, with the U.S. Supreme Court. And anyway, yesterday, a number of others filed in this case. For example, the Supreme Court ordered that the defendant states has to have to file by today. And yesterday, then the Missouri Attorney General filed an action on behalf of the state of Missouri and 17 other states. I'm sorry, 16 other states, 17 including Missouri, siding with Texas in this matter. And so we have a very powerful brief from the Missouri Attorney General representing 16 other attorney generals joining with Texas on this. The the Arizona Attorney General also filed an action, and it was rather weak, but essentially saying that the claims that are being made here really ought to be looked at. The Ohio Attorney General filed a separate action that was very supportive of the state of Texas in this. And then, just a few minutes ago, we had additional filings by a number of officials from the states of Alaska and Idaho joining in this as well. So we've got 20-some states represented in this now. Meanwhile, the four other states, the four defendant states, have responded. And there's been a brief filed by 20-some states on their behalf. And so this is coming down to a real showdown. And essentially, what is being argued here? is the state of Texas is saying that the Constitution of the United States, Article 2, provides that the Congress will determine how how elections take place. First of all, states, we're told, are going to set the election procedures. We read, for example, Each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives. So the legislature is specifically delegated by the Constitution with the authority to establish the manner by which these electors are chosen. And the argument being made by Texas is, number one, the Executive officials in all four of these states have violated this provision by usurping authority to change the election procedure themselves without authority from the legislature to do so. And, for example, in Pennsylvania, I'm checking for some notes here as exactly how they did this, but in Pennsylvania, they provided that well, the law provides that all mail-in ballots have to be received by 8 p.m. on election night, but the court officials and state officials both 
just defied that and allowed defective absentee ballots. They provided that watchers selected by candidates would not be allowed to observe other things like this. And so they effectively just ignored the actions of the legislature. Likewise, in Georgia, we find much the same thing happened. In Michigan, we find that without any authority from the legislature, the executive officials there sent out unsolicited absentee ballots to every registered voter in the state and apparently to many others who were not legally registered. In Wisconsin, what they did there was, well, the law is very specific about safeguarding ballots that are to be the absentee ballots in the case. What they did is they just set up 500 drop boxes across the state for people to just drop their ballots in when those drop boxes were not even being mapped. Anyway, so Texas and the other states here are saying that this is contrary to what their their state laws provided, that the Constitution says Congress, rather the legislature determines this, not the executive officials, and so they have acted not only contrary to their state legislature, but also contrary to the United States Constitution. They've secondly alleged that as a result of this, and this is naturally going to happen, and you have hasty executive action like this, instead of deliberated action by the legislature, you've had fraud, you've had error, you've had ballots lost, you've had probably illegal ballots found, you've had ballots that have not been counted, you've had other ballots that have been counted multiple times, And with all of this, this has been an unreliable election. Now, I have to say that the president of the United States has also intervened in this case. He's filed a brief, and he makes a very interesting point in his brief. He simply says that the state officials in this case cannot claim that they have followed the rules when they changed the rules in an unauthorized way. Well, yesterday also... Several of us here at the foundation filed an amicus brief. I was the counsel of record on this brief, but our brief was rather short and to the point, and I never have had a judge yet complain that a brief was too short. But at any rate, so hopefully it'll be read simply because it's short. But we've made another point here in addition to what they've said. We've said that there is a basic constitutional principle that that which has been delegated cannot be redelegated. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Stock market have you nervous with all the massive fluctuations? With the hope for a COVID vaccine on the rise, shifting political landscape, and the election at an end, it's virtually impossible to guess what will happen next. With Vantage Point, you don't have to. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how our technology can forecast market trends up to three days in advance with incredible accuracy. Text MONEY to 411411 to get what you need to stay ahead of market trends and find explosive moves before they happen. Vantage Point's patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds. Stop guessing. Start predicting trends 72 hours in advance. Text MONEY to 411411 and experience Vantage Point for free. Text MONEY to 411411 so you can protect and grow your capital now. Don't wait. Text MONEY to 411411. Go to VantagePointSoftware.com for terms, conditions, and privacy policy. 
Thinking about life insurance? What if you could make one free phone call and learn your best price from nearly a dozen highly rated price competitive companies? Well, that's exactly what happens when you call SelectQuote Life. For example, George is 40. He was getting sky-high quotes from other companies because he takes meds to control his blood pressure. But when I shopped around, I found him a 10-year, $500,000 policy for under $25 a month. I'm SelectQuote agent Dan Savino. And believe me, if SelectQuote isn't shopping for your life insurance, you're probably paying too much. For a free quote, call 800-523-3771. That's 800-523-3771. 800-523-3771. Or go to selectquote.com. Since 1985, we shop, you save. Get full details on the example policy at selectquote.com slash commercials. Your price could vary depending on your health issuing company and other factors. Not available in all states. Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. You know what stinks? Overpaying for things, and that includes your cell phone bill. That's why every day people are switching to Pure Talk USA. You get the exact same coverage as the larger carriers, but at half the cost, with no contract and no excessive fees. Get unlimited talk, text, and two gigs of data all for just $20 a month. The average person saves $400 a year. Go to puretalkusa.com, enter the promo code half off, and you'll save 50% off your first month. That's puretalkusa.com, promo code half off. Pure Talk USA, simply smarter wireless. Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I appreciate the valuable insights you are providing into what is happening in the litigation of uh, the 2020 election. As we went to break, you were explaining that uh, things that have been delegated cannot be redelegated. Let's pick up from there. This is a basic maxim of law that powers which have been delegated by the Constitution cannot be redelegated. And the point we made is that the Constitution delegates the power to set up the manner of elections to the state legislatures. They, therefore, cannot redelegate that power to the executive branch. But let me go on to say that that's not even what happened here. They didn't redelegate it to the executive branch. The executive branch usurped it without the legislature even allowing it. And that is even worse. But there's another point that we're making here, too, and that's that in addition to what we've already said, there's also another clause that delegates to Congress a power in elections, too. The states, as we said, are delegated the power to determine the manner of choosing electors. But when there are elections, we read also in Article 2, the Congress may determine the time of choosing the electors and the day on which they, that is the electors, give their votes. In other words, when the Electoral College meets, which day shall be the same throughout the United States. So the Constitution has delegated to Congress the authority to set the date of an election. Now, Congress has done so in 1948. And they've had this around the same time, but they specified it as 1948. They specified in Title III 
Section 1 of the U.S. Code that the election will take place every four years, and it will be on the first Tuesday following the first Monday in November. They worded it that way to say that if Tuesday is November 1st, then that doesn't qualify. It has to be the first Tuesday after the first Monday of the month. Now, our point is simply this, that when Congress has set a date for the election, state executive officials cannot then stretch out that election for a period of several months of gathering absentee ballots, harvesting ballots, that sort of thing, and that they have done so not only in defiance of the portion of the Constitution that delegates to the legislature the authority to set the manner of elections, but also they've done so in defiance of the provision that gives to Congress the authority to set the date of the election. Now, we've said, too, that this doesn't mean there can't be absentee ballots, because absentee ballots began back in the 1860s when Union soldiers were allowed to vote by mail for people back in their home districts, and it continued after that. So when 1948 Congress drafted this 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 statute, they understood at that time that there were absentee ballots, but they certainly did not intend to open the floodgates to everything that we've been seeing going on today. And what we're seeing today, you know, it it so drastically changes the whole nature of elections that we're arguing this is simply an act that would have to be done either by amending the Constitution or at the very least by legislatures, not by executive fiat. So that's our argument, and we don't know what's going to happen, but things are changing on the hour here as we're seeing new briefs being filed and so on. What the Supreme Court is going to do, we don't know. One possibility would be that they could simply decide that the elections in these four states were conducted illegally and were rife with fraud and because of those two reasons that they cannot be relied upon to determine what the will of the people of those states was. And so what they might do then is they might then direct the state legislatures of those four states to convene and to fashion such equitable relief as they deem appropriate, such as appointing a slate of electors, maybe even dividing the electors between the two candidates, who knows. But that might be what happens. That's just a possible guess. We don't know. But again, the Constitution is working here. It is being stretched and strained, but it is working. And what we're seeing is history being made and the Constitution being followed, we'd like to hope, on a daily basis. And it now becomes especially important that we have three new justices on the court, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, and it'll be interesting to watch to see what they do. So that's where we are, and I don't know if you wanted to comment on that, Brian, or if you want to go into some of the rest of what we were going to talk about with the Constitution here. I do have a question for you, Colonel, and and just because of your legal background and because of the the time that you have spent studying the laws and, and studying the courts, I'm just curious what your impression would be. How difficult would it be to be in the the shoes of those Supreme Court justices at this time? It seems like no matter what they do, they all stand the the possibility of being very, very unpopular. Well, you're absolutely right. And if you want to be popular or if you 
don't want enemies, then being a judge is not the place to be, or at least being a good judge is not the place to be because a good judge is going to make decisions that are going to make people unhappy. So we're looking at a situation right now where, and frankly, I think in this case, the Supreme Court made a mistake some months ago. A few months ago, several of these election schemes were challenged before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court refused to hear the challenge. And I understand why they refused to hear them, because normally the court doesn't like to take an activist position. They essentially said, let's see how this plays out. But if they had taken a position at that time, if they had said at that time, these schemes of advanced voting are unconstitutional and they need to be stopped, then we'd be in a better position to deal with it now. But because they waited, we have had this advanced voting. We've had millions of voters in these states that have voted in advance, and many of them doing so perhaps in good faith, believing this was legal when it was not. And so if they were to suddenly say that all of these advanced votes have to be discounted, by the way, when they... Issued, when they refused to issue their order to stop the advanced voting, they did give a, a provision here where they relied on the assurance of the state of Pennsylvania that they would separate the advanced votes from the votes that were actually cast in person on election day. The day after they gave that assurance and the Supreme Court decided not to take the case, the very day after that, Pennsylvania officials reversed themselves and said they were not going to separate which, again, would make not counting them today especially difficult. But anyway, so if they were to decide that this election has to be invalidated, they're going to have millions of people unhappy. If they were to decide to validate it, there's going to be millions of people on the other side that feel an election was stolen, and they're going to be unhappy. So either way, there are going to be a lot of unhappy people, and a lot of this could have been avoided if people had simply respected the Constitution and the rule of law from the beginning and not tried to implement this system, which I think was clearly designed to try to skew the vote in favor of Vice President Biden. And, in fact, COVID has been just the ideal excuse for the Democrats to do what they've done. They had a candidate that they did not want to have out in the public great deal because the question whether he could withstand the exposure. And COVID gave them their excuse for to keep him in the basement as though he was doing the safe thing and doing the proper thing. And Trump, when he tried to campaign in the way that he has always done best with his rallies and so on, right. that was played up as being dangerous. And anyway, so then... We have the danger of people coming to the polls in the midst of COVID, and that could be dangerous. So in order to protect people from COVID, we need to have all this advanced voting. And so COVID has given them the excuse to do all this. But as one federal judge said, that he said that <clears throat> there is no pandemic exception to the Constitution. And as Justice Gorsuch said a couple of weeks ago, even if the Constitution has taken a holiday, it cannot become a sabbatical. We don't think you'd even take a holiday, but anyway, he's leaning in the right direction.
Once again, we thank you for joining us. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Well, Colonel, we're ready to delve back into the Constitution. We have arrived at a section that is of great importance, Article 1, Section 8. Where would you like to start on this section? Well, let's start from the beginning and then go to the end. Sounds good. And you're right. Article 1, Section 8 is certainly one of the most important sections of the Constitution because this section gives power to the Congress and it is one of the greatest delegations of power that we see anywhere in history. And it is all a delegation of power that we need to understand that Congress has only the powers that we, the people, have delegated to it through the Constitution. And most of those we're going to find here in Article 1, Section 8. Now, Article 1, Section 8 begins by saying the Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, but all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States, And then it goes on to specify many more things that Congress can do. But then we close Section 8 with these words, that besides what we've just said of these powers that Congress has, Congress has power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States, or in any department or officer thereof. Now, we call this the necessary and proper clause. Sometimes it is called the elastic clause because it seems to be stretchable. And the first thing to notice about this elastic clause is that, well, maybe it is stretchable, that it does still apply, and Congress still has only delegated power. And there are some who seem to think that the necessary and proper clause means that anything that we haven't said in all the clauses above the Congress can do, they can do them by the necessary and proper clause. And that is not the meaning of the clause at all. Rather, what the clause is saying is that as far as these powers that we've given beforehand, if it is necessary and proper for them to do something else in order to carry out those foregoing powers, they have the power to do those other things that are necessary as well. Let's give an example here. We read in Section 8 that one of these powers that is given to Congress is the power to establish post offices and post roads. So, in other words, a mail system. Now, we don't see them say anywhere that they have the power to hire mail carriers or they have the power to print stamps or the power to provide mail pouches or mail trucks, but we would say that these things are necessary and proper to operating a post office, so the power to establish post offices includes the power to do these other things that are necessary and proper. But how broadly do we interpret this necessary and proper clause? That's been a subject that has come up quite a number of times in court, but there is one really definitive case on this that is called McCulloch versus Maryland. It's from, I believe, 1819. And if I were to give you a list of perhaps the half a dozen most significant cases in the history of the Supreme Court, McCulloch versus Maryland would certainly be up there near the top of that list. 
This involves the power of Congress to establish a national bank. And Congress had wanted to establish a national bank, and you recall that that was Hamilton's dream. Hamilton, who wanted the powers of Congress interpreted broadly, wanted a national bank. He thought that was necessary for the federal government. Jefferson strongly opposed a national bank. And anyway, Congress had adopted a national bank. And then the state of Maryland, which was controlled by Jeffersonians who wanted the Constitution interpreted narrowly, they said that the national bank was unconstitutional. And so they challenged it in court. And so we get this case, McCulloch, who was a federal official in charge of the bank, versus Maryland. And Maryland said, look, go to Article 1, Section 8. All the things that it says Congress can do, there is nothing there that says Congress has the power to establish a national bank. And so we haven't delegated to Congress the authority to establish a national bank. Then Congress doesn't have that authority. After all, Tenth Amendment, powers not delegated to the federal government by the Constitution are reserved to the states or to the people. Okay, that sounds like a very strong argument. The federal government tried to argue, well, we grant that it's not specifically stated here that Congress has the power to establish a national bank, but it certainly is implied to some other things. For example, it says we have the power to tax and spend. The bank is helpful for that purpose. They have the power to borrow money and to pay debt, established for that purpose. They have the power to coin money and put money into circulation. A national bank is certainly helpful for those things. So we think it fits under the necessary and proper clause. Well, Maryland's response was, well, yes, you might be able to make an argument that a national bank would be helpful, would be efficient, would be convenient, but is it absolutely necessary? Are you saying that we can't have a system of money, that we can't borrow or spend money, that we can't do these things without a national bank? All you've proven, federal government, is that a national bank is helpful. You haven't proven that it is necessary. And since it's not necessary, the necessary and proper clause doesn't allow it. Well, then the case goes to the Supreme Court, and the chief justice of the Supreme Court is John Marshall. Now, John Marshall is sometimes called the great chief justice, and whether you agree with him or not, there is no question he is a brilliant justice. It's been said that you don't get into an argument with him because he'll take every word you say and cite dictionary definitions and case precedents to prove that you said exactly the opposite of what you thought you said. And so Marshall goes on to prove to us that necessary doesn't really mean necessary. He says when people commonly use the word necessary, they don't mean it in the sense of absolutely indispensable. For example, Brian, as we're recording this program here, I can see you so you can give signals to me, and I could say I need to see you give those signals. Do I mean by that that it is absolutely indispensable? No, we could get along without that, but it's convenient. And so Marshall is saying, we commonly use the word necessary to mean convenient or efficient rather than absolutely indispensable. So what he has just argued to us and established for us is that necessary doesn't really mean necessary. Now, as a result, the court says that the national bank is necessary in the sense of being convenient. And so therefore, he says, the national bank 
is it is constitutional, but many still disagreed with that. And it's an important decision. You can see the reasoning behind it. But let's just suppose that someone appointed by Thomas Jefferson instead of John Marshall had been the chief justice at this time. The decision might have been very different, and the whole course of constitutional law and federal power might have been very different if the necessary and proper clause had been interpreted in a more narrow sense than it was interpreted here. Interestingly enough, some 13 years later, when Congress again called for a national bank, President Andrew Jackson vetoed the national bank. And in his veto message, he vetoed because he said, I think a national bank is unconstitutional. And his veto message is a very significant one. He goes on to say, yes, I know, I've read McCulloch versus Maryland. I know the Supreme Court said that it's constitutional, but I don't agree. And what he said here is very significant. He said, every branch of government and every federal official swears an oath to interpret the Constitution as he understands it and not as it is understood by somebody else. The Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution is no more binding on the President or Congress than Congress's interpretation is binding on the Supreme Court. And so that was an important point at that point. The question of how authoritative Supreme Court decisions were was not clearly set out yet. And he made a very significant point, and perhaps one that needs to be given more consideration today. Anyway, Marber, rather... McCulloch versus Maryland, a seminal Supreme Court case on federal power. I love it. I think that may be the best explanation I've heard of necessary and proper. And uh, and I'm glad I've never, you know, had the bad fortune to get into an argument with with that judge. <laughs> we'll take a very quick break. We'll continue with uh, Article 1, Section 8 when we continue here on Constitution Classroom. Again, we invite you to please visit the archives. You'll, you'll find there is a wealth of information that Colonel Eidsmo has provided for us, and it's right there at lovingliberty.net. All you have to do is look up the podcast archives. Constitution Classroom is what you're looking for. We'll be back right after these messages. why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. The number one gift in this stressful year, relaxation from Homedics. Soothing stress for over 35 years, Homedics is the top home massage products brand with gifts for every aching muscle on your list with free shipping on orders over $50. Holiday supplies won't last, so avoid the rush while you can at H-O-M-E-D-I-C-S dot com. Get the perfectly relaxing, perfectly affordable gift now at Homedics.com and major retailers everywhere. We all have health goals, but let's face it, 
You are living in some fantasy world if you think you are suddenly about to start eating better. In fact, have you thought of this? How many different servings of fruit have you eaten today? How many servings of vegetables? And sorry, Dad, French fries and ketchup don't count. The experts recommend eating over 10 servings of fruits and vegetables each day. That's where Balance of Nature comes in. With three fruit and three veggie capsules, Balance of Nature gives you all your daily recommended servings and contains 31 different fruits and vegetables. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of fruits and veggies. Change your life now by calling 800-2468-751. That's 800-2468-751. Or by going to balanceofnature.com and make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount code USA. Do you think some of the top investors in the world are buying gold? Recently, a handful of billionaires have been accumulating gold over other forms of investments. When the world's financial moguls like Sam Zell begin choosing metals, perhaps it's time you listen and follow suit with your own personal investments. Gold is formally recognized as a hedge against currency depreciation and inflation. Take David Einhorn as one example. Einhorn founded Greenlight Capital in 1996 and surged that fund from $900,000 to as high as $11 billion. Einhorn believes that the central bank's recent stimulus efforts will have an effect on pushing up the value of gold. He keeps 10% of his firm's value stored in gold bullion. If you're interested in knowing more about gold, platinum, and palladium, call Noble Gold for a no-pressure consultation. They have the most experienced representatives and an exclusive pipeline to metal sources. Visit them at noblegoldinvestments.com. That's noblegoldinvestments.com. Once again, we are back. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, are we ready to talk about some of the uh, fiscal responsibilities that the Constitution uh, gives to the federal government? We certainly are. And as we see, those responsibilities have been broadened quite a bit with this broadened interpretation of the necessary and proper clause. But as we see in Section 8, Congress has power to lay and collect taxes. It has the power to pay debt has the power to provide for the common defense and the general welfare of the United States. Now, paying debts, collecting taxes, and providing for the common defense is fairly clear, but what do you mean by general welfare? Well, first of all, there was a conflict in the early days of the Republic between James Madison and Alexander Hamilton as to the meaning of this entire phrase. Madison said that a expenditure or an act by Congress has to, first of all, fit one of those categories. Taxes, paying debts, providing for defense or welfare, it has to fit one of those categories or else we can't do it. And if it fits one of those categories, then still it has to fit into some of the subsequent, like borrowing money or regulating commerce or other things like that. Hamilton, on the other hand, said, No, if it's one of those four, laying and collecting taxes or paying debts or providing for defense or welfare, then that's all we need. And if it's for one of those things, Congress can do it. That's all we need. Well, in 1934, I believe it was, in the Butler versus United States case, the Supreme Court, in a divided opinion, decided that Hamilton's interpretation was correct. And that, again, broadened the interpretation of this clause. But let's look at this phrase for a moment here, this phrase, general welfare. 
we think that's pretty broad. Congress can spend for the general welfare. That means they can do just about anything they want. Well, why did they say general welfare instead of just welfare? The phrase general is included as a limitation on welfare. It means that Congress can spend only for those things that are beneficial for the entire nation as a whole. Congress cannot spend for the specific welfare of individuals or regions or socioeconomic groups. Now, I'm going to tell you a story here and don't know for sure whether the story is true. It's been told for about 150, 170 years. It goes back to about the 1850s, but whether we can actually trace it back to Davy Crockett himself is unclear, but the story is that Davy Crockett, who served a couple terms in Congress and pretty prominent in Congress, in fact, in fact, some of the Whig Party were thinking about running him against Andrew Jackson, but anyway, Crockett one time had been campaigning for re-election and came into a district where he saw a farmer that he recognized by the name of Horatio Bunce and came to him to ask for his vote. And Bunce said, I will not vote for you because you violated your oath of office to uphold the Constitution. And Crockett asked, well, how did I do that? He said, well, you remember that vote you cast for relief for those fire victims in New York? Well, yes, how could you begrudge that? It was only a small amount and they were destitute. And Bunce said, it's not the amount, sir, it's the principle. You are authorized to spend only for the general welfare. This wasn't for the general welfare. It was for the specific welfare of those individuals. You violated your oath of office. I shall not vote for you again. Crockett said, well, I understand your point, and I'm not going to ask you to vote for me, but if you will call a meeting of farmers in this area, I will come to that meeting. I will publicly apologize for that vote and promise not to vote that way again. Well, he called the meeting, he made the promise and the apology, and we don't know whether Bunce voted for him or not, but he was reelected. And in the next session of Congress, there was another relief bill. Looked like it was going to pass, it was for a widow. When Crockett stood up and he said, recounted his story of Horatio Bunce, and he said, this is not for the general welfare. It is for the specific welfare of that widow. I cannot vote for this bill, but I'm willing to donate the week's pay to this widow, and if the rest of us will do the same, it'll be more than the bill calls for. Well, Crockett noted that when he passed his coonskin cap, he was the only one who contributed. He said congressmen are much more willing to spend the taxpayers' money than they are their own. Whether that story is true or not, we don't really know for sure. But and in fact, a Tennessee historian simply said that there are many stories about Crockett that we cannot confirm, including some that he told himself. But I'll tell you one that is confirmed. James Madison himself, the man that we call the father of the Constitution, was a member of Congress. And in 1792, Congress appropriated $15,000 to assist some French refugees who were destitute. James Madison disapproved of this, and Madison wrote, I cannot undertake to lay my finger on that article of the Constitution which granted a right of Congress of expending on objects of benevolence the money of their constituents. In other words, he's saying the Constitution doesn't authorize this. And there are others who took a similar position. For example, 
John Tyler once made the statement that he could find nothing in the Constitution that authorized spending for private welfare. Franklin Pierce also vetoed a appropriation bill one time, saying nothing in the Constitution authorizes this. And Grover Cleveland did much the same thing. But today, we seem to have decided that general welfare is just a very broad term, and we've kind of forgotten that it does include that exception of general. But in, for example, the Stewart Machine case, the Supreme Court justified the Social Security Act, even though this was a tax and an expenditure and went to specific individuals. But the court said, look, it goes to people all over the country. All regions of the country benefit from it. Everybody hopes they're going to be old enough to be able to collect Social Security someday. And besides that, when people get their Social Security checks, they don't just stuff them under a mattress. They go out and buy groceries and other things, and so it stimulates the economy as a whole. And so we think this supports the general welfare. Well, you can see the reasoning in that case, but I would just say that that does violence to what the framers meant by general welfare. And if you like that interpretation, I'm going to ask you to write to Congress and ask them to send an appropriation, I'd say $10 million would be sufficient, for what I call the John Eidsmo Benevolent Fund. And I pledge to you, I'm going to use the John Eidsmo Benevolent Fund for the general welfare of the United States. For example, I think I'd like to have a nice ski condo, maybe there at Solitude or Alta or one of those places in Utah. And I promise that I'll use only American-grown, American-made materials for that. Look how that's going to benefit the ski industry, the real estate industry, the travel industry, construction industry, and so on. But then I don't really think I should probably be there all the time. I need to come back home sometimes. So maybe I should have another condo down there at Gulf Shores. Again, I'll use all American-made materials, and I'll get myself a fleet of, well, I'll make it Cadillacs, so they're American cars rather than Ferraris. And look how that's going to benefit the automobile industry, the travel industry, and so on. But if you accept this interpretation, then send your letter to Congress to appropriate money for the John Eidsmo Benevolent Fund, which, of course, I really don't believe and I really don't want because that is not my interpretation of the general welfare clause. I just say that to illustrate how silly and even how dangerous that kind of an interpretation can become. Anyway, as we look at all this, we're going to say more things about the powers of Congress under this area, but what we have seen so far is that this is a delegation of powers that the Constitution, we the people through the Constitution, have given to Congress. But it has to be powers that are set forth here in the Constitution. They're interpreted broadly by the necessary and proper clause. However, that necessary and proper clause doesn't just stand by itself to give them the authority to do anything they want to do. It has to be the authority to do something that is found elsewhere in Article 8 or or Section 8, or other provisions of the Constitution. So again, we're looking at a very, very important part of the Constitution here, and we'll continue to look at this. And I'd like to ask listeners, if you have questions about the Constitution, send them in to us. We'd be glad to talk about them here in this program. What's the and best Brian way to contact you? Those. Best way to contact me would be my email address, which is idsmoja at juno.com, and Maybe, Brian, maybe you can put that up on the screen. Absolutely. Or you can go to the website for our foundation. 
morallaw.org. Okay, I will include that uh, that email address in the show notes, which will be at the uh, lovingliberty.net website. Colonel, thanks again for your time, and thanks for sharing uh, some of your hard-won wisdom about the Constitution. I look forward to us getting a chance to get together same time next week and to talk about this once again. Thank you, Brad. 